Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Peter Selby. Peter, thank you for joining us on Rising Tide. My pleasure. It's good to have you, and uh, Peter is a, is a repeat guest unintentionally, so we, we tried to do this a few weeks ago, and, and I think the, uh, the loose nut behind the wheel was on my end, and I think I was the one that uh, just couldn't pull it off, but I think we had like 7.4 billion people on the internet at, at the same time, so we, oh we were dealing with a lot of buffering issues, and it was right at the peak of everybody trying to get online at the same time, I think, so hopefully we're going to have much better uh, luck today. So. Peter, tell our, tell our audience a little bit about Peter Selby. Uh, okay, so Peter Selby started his uh, professional career in the UK in a place called Bristol in the southwest of England and um, started life on the railroads, actually in the railways, which back then was a, uh, a job for life. I mean, you, you sort of go there and you're expected to stay there, do your apprenticeship and, uh, and retire there, you know, so... Um, I, I did an apprenticeship in um, electrical engineering, went and studied at, uh, at college and, um, and did that for a number of years, about a decade actually, but realized it wasn't going to be a job for life for me. And I always had this urge um, to work for a company that made things either in a factory or some sort of process. I didn't know why at the time. And in actual fact, everyone back then thought I was crazy because I had this fantastic job on the railway where um, you know, doing signaling and engineering on the railways, you're outside all year, you've kind of got your time to yourself. It's a maintenance environment, so you're not being measured by the minute and you want to yeah. leave that and go yeah. in a factory, you're crazy. However, I did and um, and kind of never looked back really. I, um, I worked for an electrical engineering company uh, for a few years to get the hang of the manufacturing processes and I just loved it all. I loved the process environment. I loved the, the sort of, continuous improvement side of it all and um even enjoyed the corporate politics to some level um you're a work, rare work bird organization so uh i started as a how did i start i started in a factory on a night shift working a braiding machine um braiding cables uh, yeah. putting steel steel braids on cables that were to run in uh, hazardous environments i worked my way up from there really um my last job in the UK then was running a recycling business, um, recycling laser jet cartridges, which uh, was quite an interesting, uh, interesting time. It was a uh, when I got there, it was a pyramid of cartridges in a shed that needed turning into a factory and some sort of environment that people could work in. So, uh, yeah, no, it was good, and um, always had a, an itch to travel. And theoretically, I guess you couldn't travel any further from England than New Zealand. And that's where I ended up. Exactly. Yeah. And I took, uh, I, I got into the steel industry in New Zealand from the point of view of bringing um, best practice processes from Europe into New Zealand. And at that time, we're talking the early nineties. Um, New Zealand was quite a long way behind the rest of the world, as far as best practice process was concerned in the yep. manufacturing environment. And, um, companies were only just getting their heads around getting international accreditations like quality mm -hmm. and safety and all the things that go with it so my first job was to 
set up systems to enable a company to get ISO 9000 certification, which is the, the international standard around right. quality control. Um, and brought me into the steel industry and process manufacturing, which was a, a new thing for me and I loved it. Uh, again, even more process than before. And um, worked my way through that industry. I started in a, uh, a manufacturing area that made rural products and moved through into making steel in a steel plant, which was interesting environment. Harsh, but, uh, but really challenging, quite good. So from there, there, I moved to Australia and uh, married an Australian in the process, which wasn't part of the plan, but there you go. Oh, uh, congratulations. That outcome. <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, let me, let me ask you a question real quick. So when you're moving from these industries, did you move because of the technical expertise you had just like in process or operations or are you re relearning every time you kind of shifted into a new industry? You are to a degree. I mean, uh, you know, the business principles that hold businesses together are the same. Sure. Whether you're building a spaceship or, or making paint, you know, but um, there are obviously specifics for each industry. But what that led me to, um, there was a lot of different approaches to doing the same thing because every state, it's a bit like the US, every state has a different idea of what's the right thing to do in Australia and um, labor relations are completely different in every state approaches to business are, are very different and i could see at the time there was also this very two-speed economy in australia where um, all the money was being made out of minerals and oil and gas and that was propping up the country and the other manufacturing process was so slowly leaking out to asia where the labor was cheaper um, and really there was no focus in that environment and the best practice that i could see at the time were at the behest of the large corporates that could afford to have a team of consultants from kpng or wherever right working permanently in their organization or in fact have their own staff um, and have a team of people working on on best practice process so i figured at the time there must be a more simple way to do this and make it available to anybody rather than um, just the top few companies and if you think of the I guess the 80-20 rule, the A-class companies in the world are, are between 10 and 20% of all the, the businesses going uh, or businesses underway and only 20% of them had best practice in them, you know, so, mm. so that's, what, that's what brought the birth of Business Drivers and Business Drivers was formed in 2008. Um, but I'd also quickly realized you can't just turn up at the door of somebody and say, hey, we're, I'm now a consultant. Um, give me some work because there's no process for them to adhere to. It's just you, you know, and sure you, you, you always leave a corporate environment with a network and you can tap into that network for a wee while um, because people trust you and they know you and they've seen you work. But if you go, once you move into a space where people don't know you, you need more than just you saying, trust me. Um, and so we built a process that took a number of years to perfect actually and i was doing fixed term corporate roles to fund it all um you know it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of investment to get it right but eventually we ended up with a process um like a business optimization machine that you can plug into any size business in any in any market really it's a bit of a unique approach uh, and the good from the client's perspective the good point is they get to see the whole journey 
and that's quite rare in consulting. Quite often people turn up to do specific assignments. They'll hire a, a business advisor to do a particular piece of work. Or if you have an army of consultants in, a, in an organization trying to drive fast results, there's no clear path to where that's going to end. Right, right. Um, we have quite a clear roadmap where we show the client. We do a, a deep analysis of what's going on now so they can fully understand all the moving parts in their business and how well it's performing and where the opportunity is. We then give them a clear view of what the benefits of those opportunities are for whether it's worth pursuing or not from a, a return on investment perspective, and then work out a plan with them of how much of it they'd like to do themselves, how, many, how much do they need professional help for, what's the payback, what's the time period. Sure. Um, and we then share the risk, so we don't charge like most consultants will charge a day rate or an hourly rate. We don't. We we take um, we take a proportion of the savings we've brought to the business at the end of the work. So there's no risk from the client's perspective. It's a win-win. The, so Sorry? it sounds like to me that if you're just taking a percentage of the first year, that that you I mean this is pretty front end loaded. So you come in, you kind of analyze the process, you put your process in place, and then you know kind of kind of realize the savings or realize the net gain at the end of the year but if if i'm a business and you come in and you do this well i'm like okay so what's next or is there a year two or you know can you do this again can you i mean so is there a retainer? Well, there absolutely is. Retainer? That's a great yeah. question yeah so uh, the other differentiator i suppose is we build a roadmap to a continuous competitive advantage rather than a one-off exercise so the deep we do this deep analysis at the start we run all the processes and do that analysis again at the end for two reasons. One, to make sure that the processes that have been designed have been adopted throughout the business. But secondly, things change in that time and yeah. new opportunities may come up or the company may have decided to go down a different path with some stuff and that in itself opened up some. So we just check that there aren't some more opportunities now hidden away that we can unlock and run through the process again. So you could run through the process forever. It doesn't mm -hmm. tend to work that way. By the time you've done the second analysis, there's normally, assuming that the company have adopted all the processes, um, there are normally just tweaks and small amounts of opportunity that come up and you run through that second process very quickly. Yeah. What we do encourage customers to do is let us do that analysis every year because it's not a huge piece of work for them. And, um, you know, if it unlocks nothing in the third year, it demonstrates that they're, they're really under quite a lot of control. But markets change so much, you know, and one of the differences between what you might categorize as an A-class company, um, where they have a continuous improvement methodology in their thinking, is they naturally assume that tomorrow is different today. Mm -hmm. and the problem is when you're a fairly good company and you're not under pressure and you're getting reasonable margins, there's no reason to keep going. And if you think of companies, I mean, exactly. I can give you two classic examples of companies that did and companies that didn't. If you think of, um, if you think of Apple with the iPod, you know, uh, they were earning millions and millions of dollars at the time out of that and they could have stopped. That's good enough. And it's called the good enough line, by the way, because it's, it's a real issue. Mm. Companies often don't go past it, but they kept pouring money into R and D. And as a result, we all have smartphones today, you know? Yep. Think of a company that didn't do that. Um, that again was making very good margins at the time had a global footprint and think of blockbuster video that's exactly uh, the one i had in mind really well <laughs> but they assume that tomorrow would be the same as today and yep. uh, 
they're now a casualty because of that. You know, the dinosaur died. Yeah. Well, exactly. But um, but they were a very good business and they had a mm -hmm. great business model. But they yep. didn't uh, foresee things like Netflix. You know, and um, the world was changing and the signs were all there. And there's you know exactly. there's lots of cases. Nokia is yep. another company. Kodak. There's yep. Yep. There's a there's a whole raft of them. So we really do try and encourage clients to keep on the front foot about what the future looks like and how that may affect them. Let me, let um, me ask you real quick what about like consulting. Like when you come in and you talk to a company as a as a as a potential client, do they do they tend to hire do companies tend to hire consultants based on the program that they offer or the expertise that they have, or is it some combination thereof? Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting question as well. So part of developing all of this process is, is the fact when you go in as a business advisor, um, you do need more than just expertise. You've got to have a process that the clients can follow and understand what you're going to do. Because at the end of the day, the CEO or whoever it may be that's in charge of that profit and loss is really putting their job on the line by letting you tamper with their business. So they have to be able to trust that you've got a, you know, a method that you're working to and it's demonstrated it can work. Um, and that's what we spent a lot of time doing. So we've since over the years built a business advisory machine, if you like, which now others are able to plug into. So another thing we offer people are to be licensed um, associates. So mm -hmm. rather than you can imagine, you know, you've been in a corporate all your life, you want to get out and have more control over your life. Or if you think of the current environment where there may be a lot of people that are now not working that we're expecting to at this point in time, and they think, well, I've got a lot of expertise, I can get out in the market and sell my wares. Um, they can now plug into something that gives them an instant access to do that with all the systems around it, all the processes, it's an established business, um, and generate, generate work that way, you know. So, um, that's kind of another leg of the business, but that's been developed more recently because of all the systems and the, the kind of business advising machine that we've built over time, which was never the intent. The intent was of course just consulting, but to do that, you need, you need a lot of processes and systems. Right. And of course the team yeah. that can cover it all. So many times, you know, you see these guys that they, you know, have had a, had a good corporate career and they're, you know, they, they may take early retirement and they say, you know what, I'm just going to go consult now. And it's it's like the only the only process they really have is just well this is what I did in my career you know this is what I saw happen at the you know the Fortune 500 company I used to work for or whatever and it's and it really is it, it all they can do is kind of this one size fits all methodology that says well we did this in our company it's got to work here too and and, and they they may not have the okay. understanding that these are completely different environments you know completely different factors that are you know, external and internal factors and and I like the, the way that you kind of phrased that needing the balance of expertise and a, and a workable system, you know, at the same time. Well, and a wider skill set. So the point you've just made is, is, a, is a classic that we see a lot of the time. If you have somebody that's worked their life in a, even if it's a few corporates, you know, rather than just one, right. and, and built up a raft of experience around that, they tend to have a particular skill in their background, either they've got a, they've got a financial background a sales background a production mm -hmm. background whatever it may be um, so they are limited to what they can offer from that perspective um, and if you're gonna and that that's very aligned to having short-term assignments and um, you know people that leave the corporate world and go the first step tends to be contracting 
um, before you're consulting, you know, you'll go work on fixed term contracts and, yep. and 80% of the people that go into the market stay as contractors. And the reason for that, there's a thing called the fear line where you have to mentally uh, make the jump from being told what to do to advising others what to do. And there's a psychological barrier to doing that because mm. of the perceived risk around it. So, you know, you think of this, 80% of the market stays as contractors. The 20% that move over then <clears throat> stay in their, in their world from their background. So that aligns you to short-term assignments or specific assignments, very mm-hmm. bespoke particular problem. Um, if you want to have the larger, higher paying assignments and longer assignments, you need to be able to take the client on the journey. And that needs a range of skills. Um, and we've been very careful to build uh, a wide ranging team. So we have, you know, um, supply chain experts, financial experts, project control experts. You, you need a whole raft sales experts. You need the raft of skills that cover all the business disciplines. Right. I couldn't possibly do it. I do a lot of the corporate strategy work because of my background. But if I was then asked to set up financial systems for a company, I, what, uh, how do I do that? You know, so uh, we have somebody luckily that is a chartered accountant and can do those things. But, you know, you do need that, that raft. You can't just have the process. You also need the delivery machine, the people behind that process. Um, that took some painful lessons learning that. I mean, we started in 2008. We're now, um, gosh, 12 years down the track. Um, but p- before we were really singing and humming I, we were probably five years in before we yep. really got got it nailed you know right yeah well, i want to honor your time today i i uh, could continue just drawing questions out of you all day long but i i really wanted i told you before we we turned on the camera that uh that i wanted to talk specific, specifically about like the COVID 19 and how you know the business process cool. and how you're you know how do you navigate well and lead a team through this so just take a couple minutes and, and just kind of drill down, you know, as, as someone that is, you know, that leads a team and has been in many different environments, what's the, what's some best practices right now for, for founders, especially early stage founders to kind of lead teams through this well? Great, great question. So we, we've been doing a lot of work with people um, over the last few weeks, as you can imagine, when you get a rapid downturn in your business from, it could be for a million reasons, there is a few approaches that you really need to take. And what's unique about right now is everybody's having a downturn at once. So where you might've been able to quickly flip from one customer to another to get around a problem, that process isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the first advice I'd give is there are some short-term decisions you need to make and some tactical decisions that you need to make. Don't do that at the expense of your strategy. So there's a lot of time being spent, assuming you have a business strategy, um, working out where you're going, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Those larger parameters haven't changed. The world has gone to sleep for a while, but you've got, you know, it's a little different than a global recession in as much that it's very quick. And the reasons that business were doing well before that recession are still there. There's still money in the banks. The recovery should be a lot quicker. So you do need as much focus on the ramp up as you need on the ramp down. What we're seeing quite a lot is companies get completely lost in cost control measures and very short term thinking, not thinking about how do we get back up? And when we do, how do we make sure we're stronger than when we went down? Because by default, there'll be less competition. I mean, that's just a fact of life. Some people won't survive this. Mm. 
Um, and it's normally the people that get caught up in the short-term stuff that don't survive. So think about the ramp up as much as you think about the ramp down, but also think about the key stakeholders in your business, the supply chain in your business. Think about the resilience of your business more than the immediate profit and loss because the immediate profit loss is affected. The revenue has been turned off. Bang. You've got to face that and you've got to make, you know, cost-cutting decisions around that but the tactical stuff is about the resilience how do you make your business less viable to, uh, less uh, less exposed to this in the future how do you solidify your supply chain how do you solidify your suppliers work with your suppliers the stakeholders keep the board informed there's all of those things to do in fact we've got a complimentary tool online that people can go to our website and just download it to try and help people at the moment it's it's there for anybody that wants to use it um, in fact, we're about to do a version 2.0 because we've had a fair bit of feedback about how to improve it, mm -hmm. which is great. Um, but, it, you know, it's for that reason. Work through your issues systematically, but stick to the knitting, stick to your plan. Um, because, you know, you will be ramping up sooner rather than later in some countries. If you think of the part of the world where we are in uh, Australia and New Zealand, um, they're already ramping back up, you know, and companies have already been caught short-footed where they've done so much cost control and they just haven't thought through um, how they're going to get back and how are they going to stay a step ahead of their competitors. Um, that competitive environment you were in before the downturn is still there. And there's some, you know, most of those competitors will survive. Because of the short-term nature of in, in areas like New Zealand and Australia or just period? Well, if you think about it globally, it's still short term, right? You know, I mean, some, we're not going to be 100% for some months, there's no doubt. But the, the money and the business is still in the system. So the return should be quicker as a result of that. Now, I know that's a very generalist thing to say, and some industries are struggling much more than others. If you think of tourism, yeah. geez, the crude the industry is going to be effective for some time exactly. to come, but yeah. manufacturing yeah, exactly. less so, construction less so. Um, sure, the, the, the tourism industry is going to struggle, mm -hmm. um, but it's not like people don't want to travel. And you, there's, there's another formula behind all this. A global recession doesn't have a vaccine. What did you say a second ago about the, I, I loved, I wanted to actually get that printed on a t-shirt. You said something like the money and, and what is still in the machine? Sure. I mean, if in, it's not like a recession where, where the money and the wants and the needs are still in the banks and in, and in, and in, the, in the businesses. It's all still there. It's just been put to sleep. So um, take away the barriers and it will return. Yeah. Now, obviously, the longer you stay asleep, like an operation on a table the longer you're out the harder it is to recover and some industries that'll sleep longer will uh, you know be a longer road getting back but for the majority of business it's not like that and we're seeing that already in the countries that are turning stuff back on factories are already operating they can't you know in fact funny enough i'm talking to a customer uh, in a couple of days time who has a problem where they now don't have enough manufacturing capacity because they've got to catch up for the, for the four or five weeks they've been behind. Well, you know, it's a classic example. But those supply chain issues, that's a, what they call supply chain amplification, where you get false storages inside the supply chain, have to wind out. And that has, a, that has an impact at one end or the other. Either yep. you can't feed the machine enough, or there's too much in there and no one's buying anything, but it's still short-lived. Those ripples move out very quickly and you're back to normal, you know? Right. So, um, right. yes make sure that you stick to your plan and uh, be ready for the ramp up because it's coming you know
in this time that so many people are facing such a difficult time i mean you're you're speaking with such such certainty that you know stay the course you know stick to your strategy plan for resilience you know you're you're going to have to do some cost cutting measures for sure but but you know stay the course and kind of ride this thing out well and you will come out of this stronger on the back end because you you know competition will be less and it just it just will be and you need to be ready when that opportunity hits but if you're going to improve processes and systems and i'm not saying this because i'm a consultant mm -hmm. The cheapest time to do it is when you have less people or less activity because you can re-divert your workforce into continuous improvement and make it happen very quickly. Then when you ramp up, um, you either need to ramp up with less resource or you're, you're running a much more efficient operation and you're ahead of the competition. So it's actually a very advantageous time. The problem is the, the um, I guess, the, the natural thing to do is, oh, no, that, well, that, that's money we don't have right now, so let's not spend it um, and uh, keep cost cut and you try and start up uh, as well as you did before. And that might be okay, but don't forget some of your competitors would have taken that time to do smart things, you know? So it, it swings around about, so it's again why we try and um, not charge a lot of money up front for work because we can plug into an organization now without it being high risk mm -hmm. at time. Um, when people don't have the money to spend and start the improvement process. So, there, you know, there are swings and roundabouts around this stuff, but the smart companies, and the other thing I guess of note, the companies that are forward focused and thinking about the rebound actually ride the storm better now because they've got, they're still doing their strategic thinking and they're not as reactive to the short term. So they actually ride the storm better, even, um, even before the ramp up happens. So, um, it's just an observation we've seen over the last few weeks. Well, this is a perfect time to uh, take advantage of the services that your your company offers, and and uh, I mean at a virtually no risk. I mean, you, you know, you're paid just out of whatever the savings are, the increased revenues. So, I mean, this is a perfect time, and I want to get that link from you. So we'll make sure that's it's in the notes for the. You said the uh, the link for the the COVID nineteen sure. you know process or or template that you you developed. So. Want to make sure we may we may be better to wait till version 2.0 is, is live you know oh, I it, that's only you a week like, away. So. but I mean, I mean even version one is it'll make you think systemically right it's just there's a wider thing for version 2.0 but um and it's on our website and we can like you say we can put the link up um bizdrivers.biz it's a very simple web address even if you go to the home page there's a button there you can it's very easy we're trying to trying to help people <laughs> through the rough times you know um Especially, and, and I get it for small businesses that have just started. I mean, that you know, you imagine you you go out in your boat for your first sale, and bang, there's a force nine on you. Yeah. Um, but you'll learn a lot in the process, and if you can stick stick your navigation and your compass due north where you've had your strategy and stay on course, you will ride the storm. What a great way to end! I mean, it just perfectly fits into the whole rising tide motif that we have around this podcast, but. Peter, we want to make sure that we, we, you know, have your books linked into the show notes as well and, you know, as resources for people. But just thank you again for taking the time today. Sure. Look, that's another resource for people. There's a, um, I released a book about a year ago on defining a roadmap to profit and growth. And it's all about the levers to pull when you're thinking about either getting a business going or taking your business to the next level or turning a business around. Uh, and again, it's a free resource. Just go online. You can book it. Um, we do, I do also offer an hour of my time for people that have taken the time to 
to take the book, um, especially if they've read it, because it's the old 80-20 rule, only 20% of people find the time. <laughs> so we do, we do send snippets and emails and things in case you don't have time to read the book just to keep, um, keep you tuned into the thinking. But, um, but, you know, there's an hour's worth of time for complimentary there to help you think through your priorities and stuff. So, again, it's there as a support to the industry and the people in it. And if it's a help at this time, then great. Peter, what a what a generous offer, and uh, I, I have downloaded the book, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, diving in, and I may circle back with you for that hour someday. But uh, thank you again just for taking the time today and just sharing so much, you know, okay. information and value, and just a, it's been a real pleasure just to, to connect with you again today, and just thank you for helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Peter, have a great day. Thanks very much. Thank you. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.